Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders, a podcast where people connected to autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, I'm your host, Rachel Harmon, a professional with over a decade of experience in the field of autism services, outreach, and advocacy. Have you ever heard anyone say that speech therapy is only for children who need to learn how to talk? Or that dyslexia only affects the ability to read and write? or that an AAC device might hinder language development. In today's throwback episode, we revisit these common misconceptions and many, many more. This episode with Jeanette Washington was originally released in July 2020. We're re-releasing it today to celebrate Black History Month and highlight the great work of Black professionals in our community. A certified teacher, speech pathologist, coder, and author, and the digital creator behind Barely Articulating, Jeanette has many years of experience providing services to people with autism, ADHD, and dyslexia. In this conversation, among other things, we discuss who can benefit from speech therapy, how autism and dyslexia overlap, why collaboration between professionals from different fields is essential for progress, ways in which an AEC device can improve communication, how differently-minded individuals can and should contribute to the tech industry, and helpful tips for parents trying to increase their child's communication skills. In this episode, discover what's possible when communication operates beyond words. And now, I present you Jeanette Washington. Hi, Jeanette. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you opening up your platform to me. Yeah, I'm so excited for you to share your insight as a speech and language pathologist. You're actually our first SLP on the show. What? (laughs) Yeah, and we're all about promoting interdisciplinary collaboration here. So thank you. Awesome. Teamwork makes the dream work, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Before we dive into explaining what speech therapy is, could you please share a little bit of your background and how you got involved working with individuals with disabilities? Oh, great starting question. So I worked as a speech pathologist, which is obviously interchangeable with speech therapist and a classroom teacher where I gained valuable insight into the inner workings of the education system and the inequalities uh, and inequities that lay hidden in policy. Then I learned to write computer code and build apps in about 2017. And I submitted talks to international and domestic conferences to discuss the intersection of technology that included disability and accessibility. I was surprised to see that my skill set, having worked with special needs children as SOP, was so sought after when I was uh, looking for speaking roles or facilitator roles. People were really gravitating towards my experience or background with working with kids on the spectrum and kids all around that had those uh, special abilities. So I worked as a speech pathologist in Jackson, Mississippi. And when I moved to Detroit, Michigan, that's when I decided to kind of switch up and pivot to see how technology could really catapult me into a, a different stratosphere as it relates to speech pathology. Interesting. So how would you describe what speech therapy is for someone who has no idea? Like, What's your elevator pitch? 
So elevator pitch would mean that it needs to be short and succinct. However, (laughs) as a speech pathologist and having worked in that capacity for a while, I know that it has layers. It certainly has um, different folds that it'll fall into. But to keep it short and brief, I will say it's beyond speaking. It's more about creating social skill opportunities. And the bigger picture is helping establish communication because some people may have communicative disorders and things that allow them to not communicate in a level in which we are accustomed to. So that's what I would say. I hope that makes a little sense, but yeah. <laughs> as we as we kind of continue our conversation, I'm sure a lot of it will be making more sense. Yeah, because communication is so important in life. Mm-hmm. In my experience working with kids with autism, not being able to communicate your needs, what you want, what you don't want, can be so frustrating. And it's really important to give people the tools so that they can express themselves. Yeah. I think that when people think of speech therapy, they often think of the literal act of speaking. And, you know, that's important, but it also includes language disorders. And for those with autism, it encompasses social skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. We are social creatures as humans. You know, I read a quote the other day. I think it was Marianna Wolf, and she explained how reading was not something that was instinctive. That was created by humans a few thousand years ago. Like we were always meant to communicate through speech, but communicating through reading was something that we developed. And I thought that was so profound. I was like, wow. Yeah. Right. And then even thinking about communication, there's so much more than just verbal communication, right? There's gestures and facial expressions. And in certain civilizations and societies, you know, I think about that those nonverbal cues like eye contact and things that we take for granted, maybe here in the U.S. or maybe in another country, you don't really realize how important it is as it is in some developing or some established countries. Yep, exactly. So what types of people can benefit from speech therapy? Great question. You are on to something today. (laughs) (laughs) So um, speech therapists, also speech pathologists can work across a person's lifespan. Um, We work with individuals with swallowing, with feeding, people who have had strokes and they need their equilibrium balance so that they can be able to communicate even further or to be able to express ideas. So it is across the lifespan. I also think about stuttering. Those who are disfluent in their communication or their speaking can benefit from seeing a speech therapist, um, someone who has issues with their social skills and they're very awkward in situations with other people they can benefit from seeing a speech therapist. People who are actors or actresses and they're looking to create a a very distinct sound for themselves as they are either speaking or learning a different language or a different dialect, they can benefit from a speech therapist as well. That's so interesting. I wouldn't have thought about that. (laughs) Yeah. Diction and voice. 
so many different things. And I think that it's a really interesting field for those who are maybe possibly thinking about working as a speech pathologist or a speech therapist, because it's something you really can't get bored doing because as someone that is a BCBA, you can work in a home health clinic or center. You can work in a hospital. You can work in a school. You can work, you know, there's so many spectrums in which you can work across. So you can keep yourself busy. Yeah. And if someone was interested in pursuing a career as an SLP, what requirements would they need to fulfill? Traditionally, you would need to fulfill a four-year degree in communicative disorders. Sometimes it is called communicative sciences and disorders. You need to complete a four-year program. You need to be accepted into a master's or graduate program. Afterwards, you would need to pass what is called a praxis. It's um, an examination to see where you are and, and how capable you are of performing functions. And it is a computerized test. After that, you will go on to have a clinical fellowship year where you will work directly with someone who is licensed and you'd spend a year kind of gaining some insight from them and and working on the job, getting that first account, that firsthand knowledge. And then after that, you apply for your license and go for it. So it's a lengthy process, but it's certainly a valuable and rewarding career. So you'll look back at that time and say, man, that flew by. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And if someone was interested in accessing speech therapy services, what would be their best course of action? So it would depend exactly where they are. But I will say that if you have some concerns about your child's development, you want to first Uh, tap or ping that pediatrician or ping that doctor to say, hey, he or she is not communicating or, or I have some concerns about the way they are communicating or speaking. And from there, it's possible they'll be able to make a referral to get you to a speech therapist. Now, in some settings, it's different. For instance, that's just one case. Another case could be if your child is of school age and you notice some things, um, some disfluencies, or just as a parent, you have some real inquiries. You can write a letter to your school and say, hey, I'd like to see if my child can be assessed for speech services. Another instance would be, let's see, a private practice. You could reach out to someone who owns a clinic and let them know about some of the things that you don't think are quite normal or they're not typical to what you understand it to be. And they'll be able to do an assessment with you and go from there. And then they'll make their recommendations. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., speech therapy is covered by insurance, right? It is covered through Medicaid, but it is not always covered in insurance. For the most part, I'll say that that answer is about 80% true. Okay. Some instances I've seen people struggle with trying to use their insurance or trying to get information from their insurance provider so that they can have that fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So it's still a growing field and people are gaining more information about what can be offered. 
Um, yes, yes and no. I think it's a growing field for parents as they're learning their child and they're learning their child's needs and they see that there is possibly a need for a speech therapist. However, for us, I think we're getting our footing and we're really just picking up our momentum. Nice. What are some misconceptions of speech therapy that people may have heard? Ooh, that's uh, another goodie. (laughs) So misconceptions I can think just kind of off the top of my dome is that your child will need to see a speech therapist for a day, a week, a month, and they'll be all set to go. Their speech will be very fluent. They'll be smooth. They'll have no issues moving forward. And they'll just excel with communication in their lives. So that's something that I've run into often. I find that parents need to be consistent. Routines need to be set and they need to be followed. So it's not likely that your child will go to one therapy session or a week's worth of therapy sessions and and they're ready to just, you know, soar. Right. And oftentimes there's homework, right? Parents need to do the work with their kids when they get home too. Yes. It's all, again, we talked about teamwork, being the dream work. It's all about that carryover. Mm -hmm. It's all about that communication between the parent and the therapist. It's all about parents doing their, their research, their homework to figure out how they can help meet specific goals while they're at home. So yeah, it's definitely a give and take for sure. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to share an example of a goal that you might work on with a kid? Okay, sure. So let's talk about articulation and articulation is going to be based on the sound. So there is a child who is saying lello instead of yellow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, a goal that would be the goal to set that child up for success and help them to say yellow in the initial position at Y and initial position correctly. And with that in mind, homework for the parent may be something as simple as putting some magnets on the refrigerator that are yellow and throughout the day, ask the child, hey, what color is that? And helping them stretch it out, maybe getting a piece of paper and working with them in isolation on that one particular sound. So what I used to do when I worked with a lot of students who had articulation disorders is that we would first do that letter sound in isolation. So let's imagine a piece of paper and it has little pieces of popcorn that are drawn onto the paper. So we'll say, um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, across every popcorn we would point to and say that particular sound, giving them practice with saying that sound. Then we would move on to saying that sound in a different way. We may look at the medial position or the final position, but all in all, we're still working in isolation with that particular sound. Mm -hmm. That's super fascinating because there are different parts of the mouth that develop later, right? Or it's maybe just more difficult to produce that sound. I won't say they develop later, but I will say that the sounds typically don't develop until a specific age range. There are milestones that you can find online and they will help you to understand 
what sounds are typical and what sounds are typically developing at a particular age. Mm-hmm. And you've done a lot of work with individuals with dyslexia. Yes. First, could you explain what dyslexia is for our listeners who are not familiar? Okay. Dyslexia is a neurological difference in the brain. Um, dyslexics usually have a lot more gray matter and It is a difference that causes or compromises the way someone retrieves words, the way they read words, and and they gather and understand sounds, the way they speak can be affected. So reading, speaking, spelling for sure, as well as making sure that you are able to, to articulate yourself. So dyslexia is certainly complex and like autism, it is on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about how dyslexia overlaps with autism? Sure. So both dyslexia and autism are known to be brain-based and affect neural processes and, and chemical communication between neurons. So that's how they overlap there. Autistic brains, from what I've read and looked at some research on MRIs, they tend to have short cells in their mini columns and dyslexic brains tend to have longer cells in their columns. This makes them processing faster in an autistic brain, but the speed comes with the price of not being able to see the bigger picture because dyslexics are usually big picture thinkers. As we know, they're both on a spectrum. So that means that these conditions can be less or more severe depending on the child's diagnosis. Let's see, another overlap is that usually people with autism will have a comorbidity of ADHD. And the same is true with dyslexia. About 60% of those with dyslexia also have ADHD. Mm, Interesting. And one of the targets that you could work on with speech therapy is attention, right? You could. That could definitely be not necessarily a large target, but a supplementary or complementary target to something that is on, you know, a larger scale. Okay, got it. As a behavior analyst, I've worked with a few SLPs in California in school settings and in private clinics. And as we were talking about the importance of collaboration with other professionals, you know, we're all working in the best interest of the client. It would only help them and serve them if we're all on the same page. Agreed. Could you talk about some ways that SLPs can collaborate on goals with behavior analysts or other disciplines too? Okay. When it comes to collaborating between the two professionals, I think it's important, as you stated prior, that we have the child's best interest at heart and at mind. So therefore, when it is time to write goals, whether there is a re-evaluation or a initial evaluation for that child, the BCBA and the SOP should definitely be sitting at the same table, for sure. We need to be looking at our results together, discussing some findings and differences between the assessments that we've given or facilitated. We both know as SOPs and as BCBAs that we address language, social skills, communication, daily living skills, sometimes feeding. So with that intertwinement, I think it's important that the different attitudes and the different egos are set aside so we can look at 
providing a language rich and behavioral rich environment for a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like the way that you said that. There are things that we can learn from speech therapists about where to start on teaching a particular target, like WH questions. And there are other ways that also speech therapists can learn from us about how to manage some challenging behaviors. Yes. Some aggressions and self-injurious behaviors, things like that. We're not necessarily equipped with skills on how to address those behavioral concerns. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting in some speech sessions at a school that I had a client at, and it was really cool to see the speech therapist communicating with an AEC device. Yes. (laughs) Could you explain for our listeners just briefly what an AEC device is? An AAC device is going to be an augmentative and alternative communication device. These are usually used for individuals who are pre-language, also pre-linguistic, or also nonverbal. We use those terms interchangeably. However, nonverbal just seems infinite. Like that learner, that student will never be able to speak. But I like to use more positive framing of the words. So AAC devices fall under the larger umbrella, which is assistive technology. And assistive technology is broader. However, it encompasses a wheelchair, eyeglasses, anything that a person can use to help better their quality of life. So um, an AAC device, again, which is under that umbrella, is simply a tool that you would use to make sure that those basic needs are communicated. Okay, so usually pictures and the learner would tap, press that picture, and it will say something. It will help explain or convey their need, their want, their desire. Yeah, and this is so important to give them a voice. Absolutely. I've been in predicaments, I guess you could say, where we were wondering, should we teach this child sign language or should we go to an AAC device? Mm. You know, ultimately it's up to the parents, but we also have to think about the general public and who they would be communicating with. And not a lot of people know sign language, but people can hear a voice that's coming out of a tablet, for example. Yeah. I think that's definitely a sticky topic because I do recall working with some parents who were really big allies and beneficiaries of the deaf culture and the deaf community. And they wanted their child to use sign language. Mm -hmm. So regardless if it's commonly used or not, you can't step on the parents' toes. We hope that they know what's best. Yeah, that's a really good point. Hey, Rachel here. I'd like to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Kelly Cotter, for contributing to today's interview with that last question regarding collaboration. Would you like to submit your own questions for our upcoming guests? Follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast and watch out for posts asking for contributions. We want you to get the most out of our podcast, so your input is always appreciated. And now back to the conversation. Let's talk about your book that was published last year. It's titled Technical Difficulties, Why Dyslexic Narratives Matter in Tech. Yes. So I wrote Technical Difficulties to empower those with speech and language disorders to pursue careers in tech. And I think that 
this book is such groundbreaking work. Not only is it a culmination of some of the work that I've done overseas, kind of speaking with people with dyslexia or conversing with people who had experiences and stories about dyslexia, but it's really um, an inspiratory guide and a love letter to those people with different abilities, you know, whether it is ADHD, whether it is autism spectrum disorder, whether it is dyslexia, I want these individuals to understand that they can create innovative software and technology in the tech industry. I think that the tech industry can be one-sided and there will not be items or tools and things that are beneficial to those who have dyslexia or who have autism spectrum disorder, you know? So it's important that these individuals are at the table, okay? I know a lot of people have been discussing ableism and how, you know, people who do not have disabilities should not be at these tables having these dialogues about those with these specific needs and disabilities. So. I wrote this book to really kind of push that envelope and let individuals know if you have something special to bring to the table, you are welcome to do so. And I want to empower you and inspire you to get to that table because our world needs the difference that you will bring to the world, you know? Yeah, I read a little excerpt from the book and it was describing... I don't know if it's a little girl or a little boy, but they're describing a scene in a doctor's office and kind of holding their parents' hand. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I have five chapters throughout the book. Um, Five is kind of my lucky number. And not only that, but I wanted to keep this book very, um, for lack of better phrases, short and sweet. You know, I wanted to get to the point like, hey, you, you have something amazing to bring and to, to fulfill, and we need it, sort of speak. So um, in the first chapter, I talk about a little girl, and it's really the way I frame it, you're there with her. You know, you can kind of feel what she's feeling, her anxiety, you see what she's seeing all around her, you hear what's happening. She has just gotten her dyslexia diagnosis, and she's been assessed by some medical professionals And they just told her mom, hey, we want you to have a seat back out here so we can provide you some further information or some next steps. So the little girl is with her mom. She feels her mom's energy. She knows that something is off. And, you know, her mom begins to cry. And it's funny that I think that children are so connected to their parents and maybe just the society as a whole. Children can really pick up when things are not right. So this little girl is picking up that something is wrong. These tests that she's taken with her mom have, you know, they've revealed this big secret, this big gnawing detail about her that she wasn't even sure of about herself. So that's kind of where we start. And then I dive into the story about just dyslexia as a whole and its origin and the founding individuals who kind of spearheaded different initiatives for dyslexia advocacy and awareness. Yeah. 
Why dyslexia? Why is this important to you? That's a really important question. When I think about dyslexia, I am thinking about one of my good friends that I grew up with. He had dyslexia, obviously, throughout his life because it's something that is a lifelong difference that you exhibit. And I think about some of the struggles that he had in our general education courses. And I think about other people who have not been diagnosed and they're undiagnosed and some of the the struggles that they have. I also think about the fact that there is research that exists, but there needs to be more research that exists. So the question then becomes, why not? You know? Mm -hmm. I can hear your passion as you're even just talking about it. Thank you. In your book, you also say that technology will only be as good as the people that it does the least for. Yes. Could you elaborate on what that means? Sure. So that kind of draws me back and echoes what I said earlier about having people with dyslexia or people with autism or people with ADHD at the table. If they're not creating these tools to help their community how are we expected to to know exactly what they need? You know, it's almost like a husband thinking he knows what his wife needs without asking her or without including her in the process of him going to pick out a gift for her. You know, mm-hmm. I see that a lot with companies that are um, able-bodied people making decisions for people with different abilities. And it's like, yeah, I, I get where you're going, I understand that this is something that you want to to spearhead or make sure that you are the face for. But I think it's so important that these tools and these technologies that are being created every day, these innovations, that they center around those who will be using them. Mm -hmm. Just so I can be clear, in your book, are you also suggesting that people with dyslexia take jobs in technology too. So not only providing their insight, but contributing to the workforce. Absolutely. There are statistics and research that shows that people who are dyslexic, they are outside of the box thinkers. They are deductive reasoners. They are people who can look long-term at things. They have a very keen point of view. I think Richard Branson and even heard that Albert Einstein had some qualities of dyslexia. These individuals should certainly be bringing their gifts to the workforce, not only through creating innovations, but being there to support innovations. Mm -hmm. And Jeanette, you're also currently working with Microsoft. So tell us about that project. I currently work with Microsoft, the TEALS program, where I am helping bridge that gap and closing that opportunity void that exists. So there are a lot of people, those with dyslexia, with autism, ADHD, those that are traditionally learning, those that meet that intersection of being, you know, African-American And, you know, female, I think about those individuals at that intersection. But the gap in tech is so vast. 
So I help close that gap. I help work with high school teachers, high school students, and teach them how to code, teach them how to program, teach them about computer science so that they can make informed decisions as to whether or not they are interested in pursuing a career in technology. That's definitely where the future is headed, as you mentioned in your book. Yeah, the future is tech. You know, and something as large in scale as COVID-19 is definitely an indicator that technology is very important. Who knew we'd be on Zoom calls and, and webinar jam and teams? Like, who knew that this would be our lives? Yeah, I wonder how Zoom and just a lot of screen time is affecting people with dyslexia. I've seen people use different glasses and optical equipment to help them. It's a blue light that is supposedly effective for um, those on that dyslexia spectrum. I haven't used it yet, or I don't know anyone who has, but I've been looking at research lately because it's become a popular topic. And usually when a topic is, is pretty popular, I like to dive into it and look up the statistics, look up research, see the um, reviews, and really dive into how it works. So I think that'll be something really important that we'll see a lot more of. These spectacles that emit different color lights that are supposed to, you know, calm or to relax the weary eyes because those with dyslexia are spending a lot of effort and time looking at screens, rereading them so they can make that connection with the comprehension. But then again, you also have audiobook and speech to text tools that have been helpful so they don't have to stare at screens and try to understand that verbiage. Mm-hmm. That's great. All right, Jeanette, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to parents who are looking for strategies to help their child communicate? I would certainly suggest that you look into AAC devices. And again, those are augmentative and alternative communication devices. As a techie, I think those are really important to have in your corner. And if you do the research and find that there are some applications or some devices that will help you to communicate with your child, then go for it. I know that there'll be a lot of trial and error. And I know that one size doesn't fit all, but it's all about making that investment of time into seeing what works and what will help elevate your child and provide them quality of life that's unparalleled. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeanette, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And the work you're doing is so interesting with the intersection between technology and education. So thank you so much for sharing your expert knowledge with us today. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening. I hope that you've got a few nuggets of knowledge that you'll be able to take back with you. Yeah, we can keep going and going. So <laughs> we really could though. <laughs> Where can people find out more about you? So I own a company called Barely Articulating and it's spelled like an actual bear, B-E-A-R-L-Y, articulating. And you can find me on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. I post very informative 
graphics and things that will certainly stimulate your intellect and help you understand more about ADHD, autism, dyslexia, and just anything across those spectrums. I usually post on uh, my Instagram account. So I would say that it's worth a visit and possibly worth a follow. Yeah, for sure. I can definitely second that. Your feed is so beautiful. It's so captivating and just attractive to look at. And the way that you put the information out there is so easily accessible for people. It's in a fun way that it just makes people want to click on it and read more and just educate themselves. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. I figure since I'm going to be on there all the time, I'm <laughs> still educating myself and educating other people as well. So, yeah. And you're also building a community at the same time. Exactly. That's the life tip, the pro hack. <laughs> right. Yeah. Bringing people together. We'll be sure to post links to your website and your Instagram in our show notes. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Jeanette. Take care. Please, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. If you liked this conversation and want to stay updated on future episodes and events, remember to follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast so you'll be able to contribute your own questions to future guests in our podcast. Thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you.